and a new atheist. Yeah. And we are going to uh, not to meet to C.S. Lewis tomorrow because uh, he is uh, gone. <laughs> uh, tomorrow it's 22nd November, so it's the day he, he died. So we will be at his house that day when he died uh, in 1953. Uh, that's, yeah, I think that's it. Great. <laughs> Peter, welcome. Thank um, you. As I have told you before, uh, he is um, connected, uh, he's connected to Enola Gimli Kohl, um, and he's a writer, a philosopher, and uh, doing a lot of apologetics around. He's going to Hungary tomorrow. So, I'm so glad he could be, uh, be with us here and uh, have this conversation. Give him Okay, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, I'll break what I'm delivering into, um, into chunks and we'll stop occasionally for... Q&A and so on, but do stop me, particularly if there needs to be additional translation. Um, we've got uh, to bring the Bible so that we can read some of the Bible verses in the uh, original Norwegian rather than the English. Uh, I've just put up uh, my business card for you on the screen there, particularly so you can note down things like my website address, uh, which will not only give you info about my aforementioned books, that give you access to free papers, to my free podcasts, to my free YouTube channel, and on YouTube, uh, not only are there videos of me doing various things, but I, I curate a lot of uh, playlists on different topics on my channel. Um, so that should be a, a useful resource for you. Uh, you can even follow me on Twitter or send me an email with a question or whatever. So the first of our two sessions, I was asked to sort of give an introduction to apologetics. Uh, and this is material uh, that I've developed a few years ago, uh, thinking about what I call apologetics in 3D. 3D films being all the rage uh, at the cinema. And um, in a sense, this is me, uh, uh, from my philosophical background, getting excited about defining something. Woo! Defining stuff. Um, let me try and uh, encourage you uh, to be excited about defining things. To define something means you have to really work at trying to understand what it is. You're trying to understand and then express what a thing is. And when you understand and can communicate what a thing is, that allows you to engage with it and interact with it on an appropriate basis. On a basis of, of reality. Uh, rather than uh, unreality. So you're engaging with reality properly, uh, and that is uh, a powerful and important thing. Um, so uh, here is how I would uh, think about apologetics. It's not necessarily, of course, the only way uh, to think about this, but I think it is a very useful way, and it includes within this sort of overall definition a number of very useful uh, understandings of, uh, of things, uh, particularly spirituality, uh, which is a word, unfortunately, I'm told by my colleagues at Gimlicon, doesn't translate very well into the Norwegian. Uh, so we tend to speak more of a life formation. Uh, the word was? Spirit uh, spirituality. Yeah, we, we use that in Norwegian too, spiritualitet, underlighet. Yeah. Okay. But I, I, I possibly am using it in a, in a sort of broader sense, then many people will, will use it. 
So let me start with just a few introductory quotations that have been influential upon me, uh, just to sort of get our minds thinking. This is, this is actually the, the death mask of uh, the French Christian philosopher Blaise Pascal. Um, in a, his notes uh, for uh, an apologetics book that he never wrote, uh, which we now know as um, Thoughts, or Pensées in the French, uh, he said this, he made a little note to himself about the order in which he would do things in the book. He said, men despise religion. They hate it and are afraid that it might be true. Uh, I'm sure we've all come across people who have that fear. Uh, to cure that, he says, we have to begin by showing that religion, by which of course he means Christianity here, uh, is not contrary to reason. Next, it should be made lovable, should make the good wish it were true, and then show that it is indeed true. So we get from this that um, his uh, apologetic, his defence of Christianity, he was thinking not only in terms of um, proving with arguments that Christianity is not contrary to reason, and then going beyond that to try and prove with arguments that reason is on its side, that it's true. Um, but he's also thinking in, in terms of the, the heart, um, the kind of emotional baggage of the people he's trying to communicate to. And talking about trying to communicate Christianity so that it, you can see that it's lovable. Make the good wish that it were true. And then show them that it is true. Because if you wish that something is true, you'll probably be more receptive to being shown that it is true. A lot more receptive than if, if you're in the frame of mind of, of being afraid that it might be true. Uh, because you hate the idea uh, that this religion might be true for various reasons. Perhaps you've had personal experiences that have put you off um, particular Christians or particular churches or what, what have you. So, the definition of apologetics is uh, a controversial matter. In the uh, Apologetics Study Bible, in the introduction, Kenneth Burr notes uh, the complexity of the problem of defining apologetics. A, a diversity of approaches have been taken in defining that the meaning and the scope and that the purpose of apologetics. Um, a classic verse that apologists will take you to in the Bible is 1 Peter 3.15. Uh, who has a Bible and can turn to 1 Peter 3.15 for us? So we're getting in the Norwegian as well. Thank you. <laughs> and the English translation? You know, in, in Norwegian we have two, two languages, so this is Nynorsk. Ah. So. <laughs> Do you want it in another one? I like that. English, um, this translation has um, always be prepared to give an answer, and I've highlighted here the underlying Greek word, uh, apologia, apologia, uh, literally a word back or a, a reasoned defense, uh, reasoned answer back. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, or hope in Christ. But do this with gentleness and respect. And I'm told by those who know their Greek that this word gentleness is about the person who's asked you to defend yourself. Um, you know, why are you suffering for this Messiah, Jesus guy? And the word respect is uh, more to do with your relationship with God. 
uh, is directed towards God. So out of your respect for God and Christ, you answer, give a reasoned answer back to the person who asks you to defend what you're doing, but you do it to them with with a spirit of gentleness. Um, Sometimes you will um, hear Christians say that apologetics doesn't work, uh, or you will hear uh, phrases like, you you can't argue someone into the kingdom of God. Um, Now, I know what they mean. Uh, We have in English the, 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 the phrase, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Uh, I think it's a bit like that with apologetics, with evangelism. Um, but it is tempting to say with the Christian uh, philosopher J.P. Morland, to those who say you can't argue people into the kingdom of God, yes, you can, I've done it. Um, there is a sense in which uh, people paying attention to arguments for Christianity have their minds changed about it and come to believe it and to trust Jesus, uh, in part, at least, because of the arguments that they've paid attention to. Um, so I had a, a, just a quote up here from a, a student from Venezuela who emailed me a few years ago um, saying that as a graduate student of philosophy, she was a, a reader of my books, which have been instrumental in my rejection of agnosticism and naturalism and have contributed strongly to making me a newborn Christian. This morning at breakfast, someone from the table over from me turned around and looked at me and said, are you Peter Williams? And I said, um, yes. And she, and she said, I, I want to thank you uh, for your work. It was instrumental in me becoming a Christian. Just this morning. I was like, wow, that, that, that's great. Um, she'd listened to some um, radio shows in the UK that I'd done on apologetics and had followed the information, got to my website and read some stuff and that had been useful to her. Um, so apologetics does work. <laughs> Um, how does apologetics relate to evangelism? Indeed, I think it's a bit unfortunate in English we have two different words here. Uh, a friend of, of, of mine is quite keen on using the phrase persuasive evangelism and says, well, there really is no point in doing unpersuasive evangelism. <laughs> so we should... <laughs> And so, um, rather than talk about evangelism or talk about apologetics, he talks about doing persuasive evangelism. Um, American Christian Doug Groothaus says the, the artificial separation of evangelism from apologetics must end. Um, the Apostle Paul serves as a model for us. He both proclaimed and defended the gospel. Uh, the, the book of Acts, written by Luke, friend of Paul, is in one sense a sort of how-to persuasive evangelism guide. Uh, Jesus, Grutas mentions, uh, also rationally defended his views as well as just proclaiming them. Um, the book of Acts, Apostles uh, also for... Mm. Um, so sometimes you will meet Christians who um, for, because of various misunderstandings of some scriptures are wary about apologetics or persuasive evangelism and think that it might be uh, unbiblical um, and my response to them apart from responding to the particular misunderstandings I think the, the best global response is to point to Paul and Jesus and the book of Acts and uh, lots of places in, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament indeed where um, the prophets and the disciples and Jesus do engage in persuasive evangelism in apologetics themselves. So if apologetics is, uh, is unbiblical, so is St. Paul and so is Jesus and so is Elisha and so on. The archaeologist Steve Collins um, provocatively perhaps says that the biblical gospel includes not only the message of Jesus' death and resurrection, but also the apologetic evidence to support it. 
the gospel isn't fully communicated apart from that supporting evidence. And of course, the word gospel um, means something literally like a good news report, uh, a good proclamation. Um, it's uh, news. It's um, journalism, if you like, uh, from the horse's mouth, uh, saying this is what happened. And it's, it's not just news, it's good news that God's... But it is news, it's information um, that's uh, communicated, that's testimony, and so on. Also, uh, apologetics, of course, has this reputation of being uh, very uh, academic and um, perhaps just for those who like arguing for the sake of it, uh, those who are um, you know, studying philosophy at university like I did or locked up in their ivory towers, um, very unecological of them. Um, but I think that actually when you start thinking about it deeply, apologetics, is, it is rational but it's also very relational. It's very much about relationships. Uh, Rice Brooks says, Christ commanded his followers to advance his message by the irresistible force of love and the power of truth. Where the Bible talks about speaking the truth in love. Um, and it's, it's no use having one without the other. It's no use communicating the truth if you don't do it lovingly. Also, in, in terms of spreading the gospel, there's not much point in just loving people if you don't give them the truth. <laughs> Indeed, if you really love someone, you would want, surely, to give them the thing that you think is the most important truth in the world. Um, the truth about Jesus. Um, how could you love them and keep quiet about that at one and the same time? And I have this quote from Nicola Veal, who says that people in relationships need to inquire, to learn, build on what they know about each other. Relationships that are characterised by, by thoughtlessness, they're going nowhere. We cannot trust others without testing their trustworthiness. We should build relationships in a rational way. And we should use rationality in a relational way. The Christian faith is about a relationship with God. And like any other relationship, this requires thought. Thought is part of relationship. Um, again, you don't fruitfully have one without the other. And... Apologetics, biblically speaking, is part of spiritual warfare. Um, many Christians particularly um, separate off um, the idea of spiritual warfare. Oh, that's all to do with that sort of spiritual stuff, the supernatural. It's about exorcisms and demons and things from... Apologetics, which is all the sort of rational and scientific and, and so on. And again, I think that's a, a false uh, pulling apart of concepts. So in, um, if you could look up, I'll read it in English, but you could look up 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. Uh, Paul says that the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds and what he means there from context is intellectual strongholds influential ideas in culture as it were we demolish he says we demolish not not literal castles or strongholds we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of god and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So Paul defines spiritual warfare as being about arguing for things. We're reading. Please do. Um, 
Våre våpen er ikke fra mennesker, men har sin kraft fra Gud og kan legge festninger i grus. Vi river ned tankebygninger og alt stort og stolt som reiser seg mot kunnskapen om Gud. Vi tar hver tanke til fange under lydigheten mot Kristus. The late great Francis Schaeffer, probably the most influential uh, English apologist of the 20th century after C.S. Lewis, wrote that the purpose of apologetics is not just to win an argument or a discussion. The purpose is that the people within, with whom we're in, in contact might become Christians, that's the goal, and then live under the lordship of Christ in the whole spectrum of life. He said, I'm only interested in an apologetic that leads in two directions. And the one is to lead people to Christ as saviour. And the other is that after they're Christians, for them to realise the lordship of Christ in the whole of life. So again, he's pointing away from this narrow idea of apologetics just being, just being about what you think. And saying it's actually leading on to something that's about the, the whole of your personhood, the whole of your way of life. So having dripped a few thoughts along these lines, here I will give you a definition and then we'll unpack it. So I, I think of apologetics as the art of trying to persuasively advocate a Christian spirituality uh, across over against non, non-Christian spiritualities and you do that through the responsible use of rhetoric and we're doing that as to show, to show that Christian spirituality is objectively speaking true but also objectively speaking, good and beautiful. So I'm not just focusing on truth. Yes, truth, but truth, goodness, and the beauty of Christian spirituality. So there's sort of three parts here, three main terms. What is spirituality? What do I mean by spirituality here? What is rhetoric? What is good rhetoric? And this idea of there being an objective truth, goodness, and and beauty. So, once we've unpacked those, this will all fall more into place. And this is a an idea, uh, particularly this idea of spirituality that I found really useful in my own spiritual life and in various academic subjects, in thinking about culture and thinking about media, uh, thinking about film analysis, in thinking about all sorts of different things so you may have picked up that that what I'm calling about spirituality is is slightly broader than what many people talk about in terms of worldview your sort of set of basic answers to the the really fundamental questions of life, the universe and everything could you go back Uh, that, yeah just just You sh- I hope you got through the, the emails I sent you the um, uh, the link to the, the where I sent you the paper and a, and a handout for the sessions no. I will I will resend to make sure that you okay. you get notes okay. but I, I think I, I sent but uh, I okay. may be confused between Maybe here and Hungary and uh, yeah. So people have this shared framework of ideas about reality, sort of the fundamental issues of reality. And those ideas, those worldviews get incarnated in in the actual ways a person lives and the way that a culture uh, lives together. And I would say that uh, a spirituality is really the the combination of your worldview, what we could call your, your assumptions or beliefs about reality, your assumptions, combined with your attitudes towards what you think is true and false, what assumptions you make about reality. 
And this, this combination of what you assume and how you rea- react to that, your, your um, attitudes towards those things, lead you to actions, to adopt certain behaviours, certain practices, to behave in a certain way. And it's this combination of, of elements that together they, they, you're aiming to have a, a virtuous and integrative way of relating to reality through this combination of assumptions and attitudes and, and actions. Please, yeah. Spiritualitet är den blandningen då nedersst av det du tror, det du tänker om om världen, dina hållningar och dina gärningar. Allt det tillsammans är på något din spiritualitet och alla alla människor har ett livssyn och en spiritualitet. Det kan vara ateistisk, det kan vara buddhistisk, det kan vara kristen, men man tänker att att det apologetik ska på något sätt nå alla dessa både det du menar och vilka hållningar du har och eh hur du lever ska på något sätt träffa. Uh, in English, this works well uh, as well. Thinking of it as the combination of your head and your heart and your hands. Um, probably doesn't translate across as well, but helps you remember it. Now, some people sometimes say, "Oh, a typical philosopher, you think we should all start with our heads <laughs> and move on from there." And you know, real people don't work like that. Philosophers aren't real people too. Um, well, I realise this. I realise really that this is actually a sort of loop in people's lives. Um, because I have certain ideas about reality, because I believe that there's a God, um, because I have a certain attitude towards God, you know, positive rather than negative, principally, um, that leads me to adopt certain behaviours like going to church and reading the Bible and praying and so on. Because I do those things, that tends to reinforce what I think uh, and what my attitudes are. Um, It's like um, taking a snowball at the top of the hill and rolling it down the hill. It just gathers more and more snow as it rolls downhill, getting bigger and bigger. Um, that's what a spirituality is like in a person's life. When you adopt a spirituality, a way of life, um, it becomes kind of self-reinforcing. It's why it's difficult, it's hard to get people to exchange their non-Christian spirituality for a Christian spirituality. When you're doing evangelism or apologetics, you're not just asking people to change their opinion uh, about a particularly important answer to a sort of pub quiz question of reality. You know, is there a God or not? Uh, yes or no? Uh, you know, um, was Jesus the Son of God? Yes or no? Did he die for your sins? Yes or no? You're not just saying, change your mind about a few things that won't really affect you. You're, you're saying, change your mind about your fundamental understanding of reality in a way that's going to affect the entire way that you live your life. The entire way that you interact with everything and everyone around you. It's a big ask. Um, and that's, that's going to be difficult. It's not easy. Um, and that's, that's why. But it is possible and it does happen. Now, I didn't just make this definition up off the top of my head. Well, the ones I had, I realized that I hadn't got there first. Um, Jesus, in answering the question to the greatest commandment, and this is uh, the version from Mark's Gospel, and Jesus is referring back to a passage in Deuteronomy. Uh, what is the greatest commandment? He said, well, it's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your mind. And with all of your strength, he mentions those three things. It's listed in slightly different ways in the different 
uh, synoptic gospels. But those elements are there. Really, he's saying, you know, love God with everything <laughs> that you are. Uh, but he mentions uh, these elements. Or um, so for him, uh, Christian spirituality is uh, a God-centered spirituality. And indeed, according to Jesus, Christian spirituality is a Jesus-centered spirituality. Jesus puts himself forward as the way into a God-centered spirituality, a relationship with God through himself. You know, I am the gate. I am the door into relationship. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way to relationship with God, the truth about God being revealed, the life of God that you should come and take part in. But everybody, I would say, generally speaking, has a spirituality. You know, the, the atheist, the Buddhist, the Muslim, the pagan, just as much as the Christian, has a spirituality. They all have assumptions about reality. They all, they all have um, commitments or attitudes, choices about what they uh, are going to do. They all behave because of those things. They all adopt certain practices because of those assumptions and attitudes. So different people put different content into this structure of spirituality. But I think that structure is just kind of part of human nature, as it were. Um, And there'll be more or less overlap between one person's spirituality and another person's spirituality, but we all have a spirituality. So this is uh, Acts 2.37, if someone wants to be looking it up. Uh, Just after Pentecost, when Peter has preached the first persuasive evangelistic talk uh, to the crowd there in Jerusalem. And uh, Acts 2.37 records the sort of overall general response from the crowd. And we see when the people heard this, I, when they, they believed the truth claims Peter was making about Jesus and his resurrection from the dead, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They, they responded in their hearts to that message. Uh, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So they went from information in, a, a positive response to that information, to what should we do about this? situation who has uh, acts 237 thank you great so you see that structure and once you have this kind of structure head heart hand structure in mind you see it popping up all over the place um, Paul in Colossians 3 15 17 talks about let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts that the word, the word logos, rationality of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name, in the character of Jesus Christ. Or Paul in Philippians 4, 6-7 says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, Present your requests to God. Actually, you do something about your anxiety by praying about it. And the peace of God that transcends understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Or, of course, 1 Peter 3.15 that we had, those elements will be there. What, what are you, He's calling you to do something, to give an answer, to give, do this with certain attitudes it's because of your hope in Christ do it with gentleness do it with respect it's about your heart but also of course it's about your your head having answers the reason for the hope that you have so spirituality head, heart, hands 
different people put different content in there. Um, Jesus puts a both specific Christ-centered, Jesus-centered, God-centered content in there. Uh, but you see this structure popping up all over the place in Scripture. And I think that's just how people are made. I'll pause there to see if anyone has any questions about uh, that idea of spirituality, what I've been saying thus far. I'll move on to um, a little bit about rhetoric. It's a term that has a, a bad reputation in today's culture. You might think about the, the rhetoric of the presidential candidates in the American election and so on. Very bad. Um, Okay, I just asked them if they uh, is familiar with the, the word rhetoric, and they they are. Yeah. Oh, good on you. <laughs> um, English theologian uh, Alistair McGrath from from Oxford Uni. Uh, he recommends that in the battle for the hearts and minds of people, Christians need to know about rhetoric. So it's good that you do, according to, to McGrath. And he points particularly to the ancient Greek thinker Aristotle, who kind of wrote the first uh, known textbook on this subject. It says, Aristotle provides both a stimulus and a framework for more effective apologetics. Uh, I mentioned his t- textbook uh, on rhetoric. Uh, Aristotle was a uh, fourth century BC Greek chap who may or may not have looked something like this. Now, Aristotle defines rhetoric in this way. He says rhetoric is, it's the power to observe the persuasiveness of which any particular uh, matter, that's a misspelling there, uh, admits. He says it's about Noticing what is persuasive about something and then communicating that to an audience, helping other people to see what is persuasive about something. So you see there's a big difference between rhetoric, as Aristotle understood it, and most modern advertising, for example. Most modern advertising is not about helping you to recognise what is good about a particular product that the advertiser wants you to buy. Most modern advertising is about making you feel bad and insecure about yourself and then saying that if you spend money on this particular product, then your life will be wonderful and all your problems will be solved. Um, That's probably not true, by the way. Um, but that's what they will sell you. They will try and sell you on a particular um, style. Or, you know, if I buy this car, then I will be like James Bond because I too drive an Aston Martini or whatever. Um, so rhetoric encompasses the principles of, of how best to communicate such objective observations to to an audience, to other people. And uh, he picked out three. Uh, crucial elements of good rhetoric. He said, uh, particularly talking about the spoken word, that this applies to other forms of communication as well. So there are these three kinds. The first kind, which he called ethos in Greek, depends on the personal character of the speaker. Ethos means character. You can talk about personal ethos or the, the ethos of an institution like a college or a school and the personal character, and this, I would say, relates to the concept of goodness. Do you have a good character or a bad character? Uh, The second, which he calls pathos, 
is about putting the audience into a certain frame of mind. This relates really to the concept of, of beauty, um, helping an audience to appreciate the beauty of a thing uh, in their heart uh, through pathos. Um, if you know uh, music, uh, for example, the Russian composer Tchaikovsky wrote a whole symphony that's called the, the, the Pathetique uh, Symphony. Um, that's not as it might sound to English speakers, the, the, the symphony that's really pathetic, really terrible, uh, but pathetic in this, in this sense of pathos, of, of really uh, pulling on your, your heartstrings, really wringing the emotion uh, out of something. And this uh, third element, uh, logos, which we'll be familiar with from the beginning of John's Gospel, in the beginning was the logos, uh, on the proof provided by the words of the speech, of course, relating to the concept of truth. And uh, this is where the whole concept of argumentation and logic and so on comes in under rhetoric. In other words, this person who's trying to sell me this idea or product or way of life or whatever, do they come across as having a good character? Do I trust them? Do they seem sneaky and underhanded? Are they just um, saying bad things about their opponent so that I'll vote for them rather than their opponent? Um, are they uh, of good character or not? Um, do they, uh, through what they're communicating, help me to appreciate the beauty of the product, the thing, the way of life, etc., that they're selling, of their vision of uh, the future or whatever? And do they have good arguments on their side? Do they have the better argument on their side? And all of these elements will contribute towards people being able to engage with what is uh, true and beautiful and good about, uh, about a thing. So, of course, these three elements of, of classical rhetoric line up with our three elements of spirituality. The head, logos, the heart, pathos, the hands, ethos, so the character expressed through what a person is, is doing. It's how we get access to a person's character. We see what they, they do in various ways. Uh, so Paul in Colossians 4, 5 to 6, interestingly enough, he mentions all three elements of classical rhetoric, and he even mentions them in the same order that Aristotle mentions them. Um, I don't think you can say from that, you know, therefore Paul must have read Aristotle, but certainly Paul had a classical Greek as well as a Jewish education. Uh, Paul from Tarsus, educated at the school of Gamaliel, etc. He did know his classical culture. So he says, when uh, you are with unbelievers, always make good use of the time. Be pleasant. I have good character and ethos. Hold their interest when you speak the message. Have good pathos. Don't be boring, in other words. And choose your words carefully. And in a phrase that very much puts you in mind of 1 Peter 3.15, Paul says, be ready to give answers to anyone who asks questions. Yeah. Go fram med visdom blant dem som står utenfor, og bruk den dyrebare tiden godt. La alt dere sier være vennlig, og la det ha salt og kraft, så dere vet hvordan dere skal svare hver enkelt. So I think it's fascinating that we get the same advice from Paul that we get from Aristotle. Uh, of course, those elements will all be there lining up with the same elements in 1 Peter 3.15 that the head, heart, hands are lined up with. So that's rhetoric. I've got one short section to go. Uh, any questions on rhetoric? Bare greit? Dere kan retorikk og 
Selv om det klinger dårlig for dere. Er, hvorfor klinger det dårlig? For dere? Jeg Det er skadet. So it's a kind of negative word for them. So mm. we have to talk positive about rhetoric. Yes, it's strange. We we we've taken the word rhetoric and we kind of used it as a as a negative word. When in Aristotle's sense, it is a positive. It's meant to be a positive thing. Um, and we might distinguish between good rhetoric and bad rhetoric. Uh, really, uh, say. Um, we want to use good rhetoric. That's why, that's why putting the definition, the responsible use of rhetoric. So knowing about those methods of persuasion, you can, of course, misuse that knowledge in order to just try and persuade people in a way that's not related to truth and goodness and beauty, as much modern advertising does, as much as the... As the presidential debates in America did, uh, and so on. Um, but our task is to, um, to set that aside and to focus on, you know, we, we want good rhetoric that relates to um, truth and goodness and, be and beauty, helping the whole person to understand what is good and true and beautiful about Jesus. That's what apologetics is aiming at. And so it's, it's useful that I just very briefly... Uh, review this idea of, of truth and good and beautiful because um, I think whatever people will say about postmodernism, most people in culture do have the concept of objective truth um, that you know the answers to uh, certain questions are either right or wrong. There's a true answer, there's a false answer, and so on. Um, when people aren't just being uh, uh, sort of philosophy students in seminars, m most people intuitively recognise that there's an objective difference between good and evil. There's a difference between um, loving your children and torturing small children just for fun. You know, one is good and one is bad. Um, but culture uh, has very largely set aside the classical idea that beauty as well as truth and goodness was about discovering something objectively there um, now I think that the idea that beauty is objectively there is still an intuitive one in as far as if I say um, a rainbow is beautiful don't think anyone is going to seriously disagree with me uh, and if I say um, much architecture that uses concrete and steel, <laughs> particularly uh, with the aim of constructing places where you can park vehicles, many of those buildings are ugly. <laughs> Again, I don't think very many people are going to, to disagree. Um, indeed, uh, a quote from a British philosopher, John Cottingham, uh, noting that there's actually an increasing consensus among philosophers today that, that, that some kind of objectivism of truth and, and value is correct. Um, objective means we discover it rather than we invent it. It doesn't depend on us. Uh, it's something that our opinions uh, and so on are have to get right and can, can be wrong about, um, depending on the facts of the matter, as it were. Um, that uh, True beauty and goodness carry with them, what you sort of unites these concepts, is they carry with them the sense of a requirement or a demand. The true is that which is worthy of belief, because it is true, you know, it's worthy of believing. 
um, the beautiful is that which is worthy of admiration. If I admire the rainbow, and if, and if I, I'm looking at the rainbow, I say, oh, that's really nice. And I say, oh, 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 Tom, Tom, come and look, see this rainbow. What, why do I do that? It's because I want Tom to be able to appreciate the beauty. Um, my appreciating it and my taking the time to say, oh, Tom, Tom, come, come and have a look. That's a good thing to do, um, rather than a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to do. Uh, the good is that which is worthy of choice, uh, worthy of choosing, this sense of worthiness of the truth and the good and the beautiful. And indeed, um, when I did my um, MPhil thesis, part of it was on the objectivity of truth and goodness and beauty and how they relate to each other and then how they relate to the concept of, of God. Um, Anselm famously gave a description of God as the greatest conceivable being, the greatest being you could think of. Uh, and I was thinking, well, what would it be like to think of God as the, the, the maximally beautiful being, the most beautiful being that there could possibly be? Um, and uh, I came across a, a quote from an atheist, British, famous British atheist philosopher called J.L. Mackey, uh, and Mackey was a, a, a moral subjectivist. He wrote a whole book called Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong. He thought there was no such thing as, as moral truth, moral facts. Uh, but he said uh, that he recognised it would be, if you, if you did think that there was such a thing as a moral, a moral fact, then it would be odd not to think that beauty was also objective. He thought, if you, if you thought there was objective goodness, it sort of made sense to also think, well, there must be objective beauty as well as goodness and truth. Um, so he rejected the idea of objective uh, beauty, no doubt, just as he ob ob objected to the idea of objective uh, goodness. But I thought that was an interesting comment from, a, from an atheist philosopher, recognising if you thought there was objective truth and goodness, you know, why not think there's objective beauty as well? That would be the kind of obvious thing to do. It's certainly the, the, the biblical view of the matter. Uh, so here's another passage from Paul in Philippians 4.8. And he says, uh, he says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true... Notice he doesn't say, whatever is true for you because <laughs> whatever is true whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure and I think all of those terms in the Greek really relate to goodness whatever things are good and then he says whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable not whatever you happen to admire but whatever is admirable Whatever it is good that you admire. See the link. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, this worthiness that John Cottingham talked about, think about such things. Um, so we have from, from Paul this sense of the, the objectivity and the connectedness of objective goodness and beauty and truth from Philippians 4.8. Does anyone have that passage looked yeah. So the, the the two things that really inspired my um, Phil thesis were, were this passage from Paul and C.S. Lewis's um, little book of his lectures on the abolition of man where he talks uh, about the objectivity of, of beauty uh, quite a lot in the, the abolition of man which is a, a short and very worthwhile read from Lewis and so drum roll we get this wonderful chart uh, linking these things together and indeed you can extend this even further into all sorts of uh, interesting territory um, so we have our, our, our beliefs, our, our assumptions, our attitudes, our actions, the head, heart, hands. Um, these different levels of spirituality are, are communicated 
by, as seen through the traditional elements of classical rhetoric, so the logos, the pathos, the ethos. And when we are presenting people with Christianity, with Christ, through this sort of lens, which we've seen as a, as a biblical way of looking at it, we want to encourage them and ourselves to, to judge these things by the classical transcendental values of truth and beauty and goodness. So what's in your head, communicated by reason and argument and logic, judged by, is it true or not? Um, what's in your heart, communicated through pathos, uh, through, uh, through art and music and film and um, even you know, PowerPoint slides, um, that you bother to try and make nice rather than just boring and so on, uh, judged by beauty. Um, and uh, the actions, the, the sort of what practices, what uh, naturally flow from the adoption of these uh, beliefs and attitudes and so on that's communicated through ethos and judged by, are they good or not? And you have surely noticed that, that people's Issues or questions about Christianity, some of the reasons why they may fear that this religion is true, as Pascal talked about, have as much to do with is Christianity something that makes you good or not, um, that makes for a way of life that's beautiful or not, as it does to do with, with sort of narrowly interpreted questions of is it true or not um, and I think we need to engage with people at, at all of those levels uh, without um, just cutting adrift on any of these because these concepts as we've seen they're all bound together anyway there's no point in talking about you know are Christian views of sexual ethics good if you don't have in play the foundational question of um, can any claim about reality be true, including claims about what's good <laughs> um, and so on so uh, then we get this nice uh, chart hence we pull it together, this, this idea of apologetics as the art of trying to persuasively advocate Christian spirituality across spiritualities, other people have their different spiritualities, we're doing that through the responsible use of rhetoric, through good rhetoric rather than bad rhetoric, i.e. that is rhetoric that points towards Christianity being objectively true and good and beautiful and we kind of bear that in mind in our communication our presentation, our relationships um, apologetics is in this sense, it's an act of loving service. So it is about relationship. It's a loving service to God and to neighbour. Um, it's also, I would suggest, good for your own spiritual maturity and discipleship. Uh, just as spiritual maturity produces an enthusiasm for apologetics in this sense, so an enthusiasm for apologetics should lead to more spiritual maturity. Um, I won't unpack those verses uh, again. One a final quote from Alistair McGrath. Uh, this is from uh, his book, The Passionate Intellect. And I, I really like the, his kind of vision for Christian apologetics and evangelism. Uh, he says, We cannot allow Christ to reign in our hearts if he does not also guide our thinking. The discipleship of the mind is just as important as any other part of the process by which we grow in faith. We must see ourselves as a standard bearers for the spiritual, the ethical, the imaginative, the intellectual vitality of the Christian faith. That means working out why we believe that certain things are true and what difference they make to the way we live our lives. Above all, we must expand our vision of the Christian gospel. Apologetics involves enabling people to glimpse something of the glory and beauty of God. Apologetics engages not only the mind, but also the heart. And we, we impart.
impoverish the gospel if we neglect the impact it has on all of our God-given faculties, head, heart and hands. He says we are thus called upon to demonstrate and to embody the truth and beauty and goodness of faith. So to be an apologist, as, as sort of Peter enjoins upon all Christians, this isn't a, just a specialism. Some Christians specialise in this, but it's something for the whole body of Christ. Uh, it's not just about, you know, oh, let me read up on some arguments that I can regurgitate to someone when they ask me an awkward question, so, so I'm off the hook, um, and I've done my job. Um, really, when you start thinking about it, it's about your own discipleship and, and maturity in the faith as well. It's about, am I embodying more and more what is true and good and beautiful about Jesus? Am I putting on Christ in such a way that, of course, when people who don't have Christ come to me and they have questions, because I love them, I want as, as, as best I can to persuasively, as I can, help them to see what is true and good and beautiful about Jesus so that their lives can be transformed as well. That's what apologetics is about. And, uh, and that is an exciting uh, thing. Yeah.